losers. They exist among us, and sometimes they win. Even the devil was an angel once. The world has its own rules, and these rules are not human. Some of us seek answers to the origin and existence of cryptids and the unexplained. Join us as we venture beyond the known and accepted boundaries. Welcome to our nightmare. I think you're going to like it. Hey, good evening, folks, and uh, welcome to Phantoms and Monsters Radio, where we explore and discuss the unknown and the unexplained. I'm your host, Lon Stricker, coming to you live here on YouTube. Thanks for joining me. Now, the Phantoms and Monsters Radio uh, channel is made possible by you clicking the subscribe button button, and by you sharing our programming. Uh, Super chat donations are essential for us to continue offering you our unique content. Your consideration is very much needed and appreciated. So tonight, our friend and colleague, Ken Gerhardt, is joining us as he has offered to answer your questions about cryptids. Now, Ken is a cryptozoologist and field investigator for the Center for Fortean Zoology, as well as a fellow of the Pangea Institute and consultant for various research groups. He has investigated reports of cryptids and mysterious animals around the world, including Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Chukacabra, Mothman, Thunderbirds, and Werewolves. In addition to uh, co-hosting the History History Channel series Missing in Alaska, he has appeared on three episodes of television series Monster Quest that was on the History Channel. It was featured in the History Channel special The Real Wolfman. Gerhardt's other appearances include uh, Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, Legend Hunters and Travel Channel, The Unexplained Files on the Science Channel, Paranatural on National Geographic, True Monsters on the History Channel, Weird or What with William Shatner, Monsters and Mysteries in America, uh, True Supernatural, which was on Destination America as well, and Ultimate Encounters True TV, Monster Project, and The Shipping Wars on A&E. His uh, credits include appearances on several news broadcasts, uh, Coast to Coast AM and Ireland's News Talk, as well as being featured in various books, DVDs, and articles by the Associated Press, Houston Chronicle, and the Tampa Tribune. Uh, uh, Ken has contributed to trade publications, including Fate Magazine, Animals and Men, Cryptid Culture, uh, the Journal for British Columbia Science, Cryptozoology Club, and Bigfoot Times. And he currently lectures and exhibits at events across the United States. So, Ken, thanks again for coming on this evening. Evening, Lon. Hey, Lon. It's always great having yeah, you on here, man. Man, we've been we've we've known each other a long time, brother. I think that's one of my vintage bios. You know, maybe not too old, but. <laughs> takes me back to like a little bit of our history here yeah a lot of these these interviews they've been fun well you know you're doing so much i can understand why it's hard to update stuff like that but um you know uh and you you have busy been busy you know the last time you were on here and i think we were talking about the Loch Ness book you had written yeah and uh you had mentioned at the end of the show 
that you were getting involved in an investigation in Northern California of these giant salamanders. So I hadn't really heard a whole lot about it. I had people asking me about it. So can you tell me a bit about what you came across and uh, if you discovered anything? Yeah. Um, well, you know, and just to reiterate what we talked about, um, you know, the giant salamander mystery is kind of one of those hidden nuggets in the field of cryptozoology a lot of people haven't heard about. Unless you've mm-hmm. read a lot, read, uh, read a lot of the classic Bigfoot literature, like books by Ivan Sanderson and John Green and some of those guys, because they would sometimes when they were searching for Bigfoot in Northern California, they would hear these other stories about these monstrous salamanders that were said to be like five to eight or nine feet long, which, of course, is larger than any known species. Um uh, in North America, we have the hellbenders up in the east. Those are, you know, maybe two or three foot long. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are cryptid, cryptid branks, uh, the types of salamanders. And in Asia and China, they have some big five footers. But um, anyways, so, um, you know, there have been expeditions through the years, but none recently. And it, uh, it started out as kind of a, uh, a discussion on, a, I think, on a Bigfoot you know, Facebook page where someone brought up giant salamanders. Oh, it was Jamie Wayne of the Bluff Creek Project who's out mm-hmm. there in Northern California. And we all, a few of us started talking about it. And we're like, well, let's go look for him. So um, July of this last year, we uh, went up there. Uh, we were partially sponsored by Lauren Coleman and the International Cryptozoology Museum. Lauren, of course, is a huge fan of Tom Slick and all things cryptozoology. And I think it was always kind of something he wanted to be involved in as well. Um, Jamie Wayne was our, you know, he was our facilitator and was amazing. Uh, he's from that area. He found a a great location for us, which is in the Trinity national forest, which was, you know, basically where a lot of these sightings came from. Hmm. And, um, so we found a camp and, um, I went out there with a team of three guys from Texas and Oklahoma. And, uh, it was, uh, Daniel Allen Jones, who's, kind of an all-around Fordian investigator and videographer, and um, Jim Whitehead, who's a biologist and Bigfoot researcher from Oklahoma, and uh, Jason Conci, who's a Bigfoot researcher and elephant handler uh, and handler of other exotic animals here from, from Texas. So we all went up there, and it was an amazing drive. It was like a 30-hour drive from Texas, which was beautiful. But anyways, um, you know, we found the camp. We had lots of gadgets, several underwater cameras, including like a little ROV submarine with a camera on it. Um, we utilized different, uh, we were working basically the Trinity River. Um, a lot of these waterways are interconnected up there in the mountains, but it's pristine habitat. I mean, it's old growth forest, no logging or development ever. This forests are like hundreds of years old. So it's pretty, mm. pretty sweet. And these uh, fast-running rivers that are basically running down the mountains, um, they're cold, they're shallow, lots of rocks, and those are salamander habitats for, you know, for aquatic salamanders. So uh, we, uh, I actually consulted with a, a conservation biologist who does uh, salamander surveys in, in Asia and other places, actually a couple. And we found out that, you know, the best way to look for these giant salamanders is basically just to wade through the creeks and stick your arm under a, you know, under a rocky ledge or in a, you know, because these things hide in holes and pockets. Yeah, it's kind of like noodling. If uh, any of your listeners out there from Oklahoma or the <laughs> South, um, so we had nets, and um, so yeah, we did a pretty extensive. You know, where our ultimate goal was to make it up to this place called White's Lake, 
which was actually called Hubbard Lake at one time. And um, it's pivotal in this giant salamander story. Uh, it's been claimed that this guy saw like a whole bunch of these huge salamanders in this lake. And we made it as far as White's Creek, which is runs off of that lake, but it would have been another, you know, eight or nine miles through some pretty treacherous habitat. And, you know, we had some logistical issues. Well, you know, restraints, I should say, you know, only so much time and it can only cover so much ground. Um, but, you know, we did learn a lot about these giant salamander accounts. Many of them date from the 1920s, 40s and 50s. So they're very mm -hmm. old. But um, some of the locals there in, in that air, uh, area that, um, you know, spoke to the Native American people and you have the Hoopa tribe is, is primary up that uh, primary up there. And also the I think the Yurok tribe have legends of what they call the long ones, which are described as these aquatic monsters or mythical animals that are very long and slender and that could certainly represent these giant salamanders so wow. and there have been a few sort of quasi modern sightings in the early 2000s and stuff uh one guy who's actually claimed he's seen one of these things is mk davis the mm -hmm. analyzer of bigfoot videos he was up there doing a bigfoot project and claimed he saw this huge salamander that i think he said it was like three feet long but um yeah, so that's it in a nutshell. We didn't find any monster salamanders. We did finally manage to find some uh, local species that we that are known about. Uh, one is the Pacific giant salamander, which is, you know, they can get to be like a foot long. You know, maybe there are stories of them getting up to 18 inches long. So, you know, mm -hmm. they're, for a salamander, they're impressive, but not, not cryptid, unfortunately. So mm -hmm. that was pretty much it. And then the... Uh, the cherry on top of the cake was, and by the way, we did videotape and document the whole thing. So we've got a lot of footage, but we've just never had time to, that's on our bucket list there is to try to put a video together so people can kind of see how the expedition went. Cool. But um, the the cherry on top of the cake was that we got to visit Willow Creek, of course, and the China Flat Bigfoot Museum and see the all the famous Bigfoot statues and locations in that town. But on the very last weekend, we got to join up with other researchers at Bluff Creek and basically visited the, the film site for the Patterson-Gimlin film, which uh, every July, some, the Bluff Creek Project and other Bigfoot researchers, camp, uh, they camp out there at Laos Camp, which is the camp where, you know, the early guys, John Green, Renee DeHinden, Peter Byrne, Tom Slick, all those guys, uh, Bob Titmus would camp out there and do expeditions and... Um, Patterson and Gillen camped out there too. And uh, yeah, so, you know, finally getting to visit the film site after all these years was really important to me because it gave me kind of a perspective on the film that I hadn't had before. The area has changed, uh -huh. um, but the Bluff Creek Project has done a masterful job through the years figuring out exactly, yes, this is the exact film site. Believe it or not, there are some old trees that are still there that you can see in the original film and match them up perfectly and stuff so mm. oh here we're seeing some giant salamander graphics yeah, <laughs> yeah i love cool. salamanders they're they're fascinating they are they're amphibians of course yeah um they um they can breathe through their skin cutaneously so they can stay underwater and they don't really have big teeth their teeth are pretty tiny but they have this huge gaping mouth and suction force so what they do mm. is they lay in wait and when fish and crustaceans things go by, they just suck them into their mouth. And um, yeah, it's uh, pretty cool. Hopefully someday we'll get a chance to go back there and, and continue searching because I think, who knows, you know, um, 
this is yeah. a habitat that would be conducive to those animals and um there have been accounts through the years and uh it's something a little bit different to, to go search for other than the, the standard cryptids i had my own hellbender story i i used to do a lot of trout fishing fly fishing up here in pennsylvania when i was younger and uh i was nymph fishing up at uh yellow was creek called yellow breaches it's just north of here and it's kind of a quasi limestone uh freestone creek mm -hmm. but uh i hooked into one of the salamanders, one of oh, the wow. hellbenders and i mean it was it was about a foot and a half long it was big yeah so they're a, they're big boys and they look really weird right because they have yeah, this kind of they wrinkly get, they're they flat the and wrinkly and yeah, yeah. So they're kind of creepy, weird. Oh, yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah um, I, I didn't know what the hell I saw there. You know, but but yeah, yeah, that's what it was. God told me it was a hellbender. Yeah, I you guys got them up it. up in the northeast and parts yeah. of the the middle America. Um, sadly, like many species, they are becoming endangered. Yeah. primarily because uh, amphibians are the most uh, vulnerable when it comes to pollution and oh, absolutely climate climatic changes and things like that so but it's it's cool that you got to to see one of those because they're really mm -hmm. hard to find these days yeah yeah they are so i guess we can start with the first question this is from oh. james west what can ken tell us about the winged humanoids in kansas or and i think he means kansas city because there have been a lot of sightings up there in northern missouri yeah um good question to start uh first i want to start out this uh session with a disclaimer which is uh, you know, basically, these are just my views and opinions. And quite honestly, everything that we do in this field is speculation. So Absolutely. I'm not coming on here as the definitive expert in anything. Um, I do consider myself very well researched. I've been obsessed with cryptozoology my whole life. And I do it for a living. This is all I do all day is cryptozoological research. And I do a lot of field work. So and I, and I speak with most of the I think the other researchers out there that have a level head and really put a lot of work and, and thought into this stuff. Um, so these are just my opinions, but uh, yeah, flying humanoids, of course, I did write a book in 2013, mm -hmm. Encounters with Flying Humanoids, Mothman, Manbirds, Gargoyles, and Other Winged Beasts. Uh, unfortunately, it's out of print. I think there is an ebook on Amazon, but uh, it's out of print, so it's kind of hard to find these days. I might re-release that at some point. It focuses on Mothman, but of course, uh, flying humanoid phenomenon is a is a global phenomenon. There are mm -hmm. reports and accounts, as you know, well know well, uh, all over. And um, you know, North America, of course, we have the highest concentration between the traditional Mothman, the Chicago Mothman, the Kansas City Mothman, and a lot of sightings in the American Southwest, places from Texas to California. Um, but worldwide, there are these accounts of these anomalous winged humanoid creatures. Now. Uh, one interesting aspect is that they seem to vary uh, in uh, their physical appearance from place to place. I mean, you have somewhat of a consistent model in certain locations, like in Point Pleasant and, you know, perhaps to some degree in Chicago and Kansas City. But um, there are many different types of these flying humanoids. They don't really fit within the paradigm of traditional cryptozoology because the notion of a half man half bird or a winged humanoid is done it just doesn't make any sense from a zoological perspective but i i have personally interviewed dozens and dozens of people that swear they've encountered these things and it's really they've been life-changing and pretty traumatic experiences for these folks so um the kansas city 
really the only case that I've been involved in up there, and this was maybe predated the Kansas City, uh, a lot of the Kansas City sightings, uh, involved a family that contacted me years ago and claimed that they were, had all seen at various points over a few years in their neighborhood, this weird giant weird winged creature. And what they described was not as humanoid as uh, more of like a pterodactyl type of thing, mm -hmm. but they did at times <laughs> they would describe it as having human-like movements or features, you know, arms in addition to wings and stuff. And uh, it was a very religious family. So they really viewed it as some kind of like demonic thing that was kind of stalking their family or whatever. And it was in a particular neighborhood, which I believe is called Swopes Park. I, I might be saying that wrong. It's in Eastern Canada. It's near the zoo. And mm -hmm. um, so I interviewed several people in the family and some family friends that had all encountered this thing at different times. And they were very convincing. Um, and then shortly thereafter that, maybe a couple years after that, I began to hear about sightings of winged creatures in Kansas City. And, um, I, you know, I haven't personally interviewed any eyewitnesses. I know that there is a Facebook page dedicated to that particular phenomenon. I have corresponded with the lady that runs that and who's done a lot of research and she evidently has interviewed lots of people in that area. So uh, the things worth pointing out are that these winged humanoid uh flaps seem to be concentrated in certain areas for whatever reason. Um, they seem to come in uh, spurts. So you'll have like periods of high activity where a lot of these things are being seen. And then, you know, maybe gaps when they're not being seen so much. Mm -hmm. There there seem to be, Lon, and you can certainly weigh on this with your experience in the Chicago cases, there seem to be a lot of sort of supernatural or spectral qualities to these sightings. Uh, the, 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 the creature's appearance uh, changes somewhat, it vanishes, you know, the glowing red eyes, which is always kind of a strong component of uh, paranormal activity or, or encounters the uh, sulfuric smells and bad smells, hazy, misty, you know, weird atmospheric things going on. So, um, so I don't have more to offer on that one. Lon. What do you think about the, the Kansas City cases? Well, you know, I, um, I know Morgan Kay has been looking at a lot of these. Uh, I think she wrote a book about it recently, but um, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, I think she got more into the demon aspect or supernatural aspect to them as opposed to being, you know, something that's flesh and blood. I, you know, I think, you know, what just like with Chicago and, you know, I, I will say you're one of the few people that I shared all this stuff with as we were going through this, these sightings early on. And uh, yeah, it was, um, I think what's going on in Kansas City is somewhat similar to what's going on up in the Chicago area. Uh, I'm not, you know, it may very well be the same same type of being. Uh, there are different some different aspects to it, and it seems more supernatural up there. I mean, in Kansas mm -hmm. City as opposed to Chicago. So uh, yeah, but no, I, I really haven't looked into much of it. I have had people tell me about these sightings, but I haven't really gone deep into it. You know. Gotcha. Well, um, I would say. You know, one thing that I've researched and write about in my book is a lot of the uh, mythologies around the world. And I think that's mm -hmm. an interesting element we can bring to any of these modern cases is if you go back, you know, in history and in antiquity, I mean, you know, the ancient, uh, the Babylonians and the Sumerians and some of those ancient cultures had winged humanoid deities like the Apkalu and Pazuzu and uh, all over the world, you have different versions of winged yeah. humanoids and different legends, the Alkanast and, 
the Garaka ribbon. And uh, a lot of these winged humanoid creatures were taken to be, and this, you know, people always think about this when they think about the Mothman, they're considered to be warnings or uh, harbingers of some bad thing that's going to happen, whether it's a disaster, a famine, pestilence. Um, so that has been a recurring theme, and you can find that in different cultures around the world, which is kind of intriguing when you think about the, these are disparate cultures that didn't have any contact, but they have these similar legends of these Mothman-type mm. beings. So I don't know. I don't know what they are. Um, you know, I think, you know, we've had these flesh and blood versus paranormal discussions. I'm of the view that perhaps something metaphysical could take on a physical presence, which is not exactly flesh and blood in terms of evolution, but you know, it's there, you know, for whatever reason, it has a physical presence in our reality at that moment. So I, I think you would agree that people looking into cryptids as we do have to keep an open mind about what they, mm -hmm. the reality of these things more so now than ever before. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's the bottom line is none of us know. It's all speculation. Uh, try to stay objective is what I tell people. Yeah. You know, don't, don't fall in love with one. Just like you said, Ron, don't fall in love with one theory. It's a demon, period. It's the gin. You, know, you, you don't know. I mean, it's an uh, yeah. it's, it's something not of our it didn't evolve on our planet, but it's yeah. here with us and it shares our reality from time to time. And it scares the beep out of people, you know. Mm -hmm. I was hoping you'd have a beep there and I could. Well, say yeah, well, you, we all know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it terrifies people. It changes their lives. Oh, They're yeah. traumatized. They get physically ill. They have weird psychosis and things over the course of their life. So I certainly, I don't think I would want to encounter one of these things. Uh, well, that kind of leads into this next question by Nancy Malcolm. What is the one cryptid you would be most afraid to meet? Ooh, that's a, actually a pretty good question. Um, well, I, I don't know. I guess this would depend on whether we're opening uh, the question to like all of the proposed cryptids, because there's there's some that are probably not as viable as other things. And um, and then there's kind of the rock star cryptids. Um, uh, well, I guess the flying humanoids, based on what we just said, would be pretty terrifying or, you know, something like the dog man, which is described as being like this hyper aggressive and terrifying. And it almost it's almost like they feed these beings feed off of people's fears. I mean, they chase them, they stalk them, they clot their cars. They, yeah. Um, I interviewed um, as part of one of the monster quest episodes I was on. If folks remember this one, I went to Mexico and they had these Mothman sightings down near Monterey at that time. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed this police officer named Leonardo Samaniego who encountered this flying witch with giant black eyes uh, back in 2000, January of 2004. And it dove onto his police car at night and was clawing at him and he passed out. And, uh, you know, he, he was on the, it, it made big news. He was on like local TV show uh, news broadcasts and in the newspapers. And I interviewed him a few years after that. And I mean, this is a pretty tough guy. He works in one of the toughest neighborhoods of southern monterey called guadalupe which is you know he's a cop there and um i mean he was just long he was just like sobbing and you know talking. i remember seeing it yeah i mean it was very emotional and he this guy was really scared and so that yeah so i would not want to encounter this the witch of monterey that would be i think a pretty terrifying one i'll put that on the list <laughs> oh yeah 
Yeah, that whole thing. I mean, I still have people ask me about those all at the Flying Witches. And I said, well, you need to talk to, to Ken Gerhardt because he did that that segment. And, uh, he, you know, he I knew he was, you know, he, you had been a part of that. So, um, well, let's add, uh, let's just for fun. Let me just throw in it. Can I have a couple of bonus cryptids? Because sure. how about the Beast of Jevodan? I mean, that thing killed like 100 people. And it absolutely basically biting their heads off and disemboweling them and. Any of those canids, off. I don't want to touch. Uh, you know. It was, and it was, it was like had this powerful bone crushing ability. If people know the, <laughs> the Beast of Gévaudan from Southern France, seventeen sixties, yeah. uh, so that would be a scary one. I don't think I'd want to encounter that. Um, so yeah, so there, there we go. You got one uh, kind of like weird paranormal winged creature, and then you have one that's more of like a traditional giant prehistoric bloodthirsty beast kind of thing mm. and then we'll put let's do one in the water how about megalodon Odidas yeah megalodon. me neither I, i'm not yeah, that, that they do survive but i mean if you're talking about a giant carnivorous shark that's like 40 feet long that eats <laughs> whales and its teeth are like that big i mean i wouldn't want to run it you know i wouldn't want to be in the ocean and you know what was that movie recently jason statham or whatever no, no yeah thanks. yeah um, well, you know, that kind of segues into this next question, because there are people who believe these megalodons still are around. Yeah. Uh, is, is there one, and this is from Marla Snyder, is there one animal that's been declared extinct that you feel may still be alive? Um, yeah, that is and, a good question. And the, well, first yeah, one I think, the first one I think of is the thylacine. Yeah, that was just that you got Vaughn were on the same wavelength i had yeah. to think about that because we were coming from that scary place but yeah let's yeah. go back to traditional cryptozoology thylacinus leucocephalus uh, the thylacine the tasmanian tiger tasmanian wolf they're still there i mean they were only officially declared extinct in 1982 mm -hmm. uh, i think they have to the laws you have or the rules you have to wait 50 years after the last known specimen and so like in the 1930s you know, uh, one named Benjamin died at the Hobart Zoo in yeah. Tasmania. And then uh, 50 years later, there were still, of course, people claiming they seen them. But, uh, mm. you know, there hadn't been enough definitive evidence. So they uh, declared. But, yeah, I, th I think that definitely there could be some of these thylacines out there in, in Tasmania. Pretty rugged country. They're predators. They're, they're going to be very stealthy and uh, elusive and good at hiding and camouflaging and there probably aren't many of them, sadly, but I think they're definitely mm. still out there. Yeah, I, I think their habitat is more in Australia as opposed to being in Tasmania, too. I mean, what do you think? Well, that's true. Uh, there have been a lot of sightings in southeastern Australia, New South Wales. And the interesting story behind that is, if people didn't know this, is that when the thylacines were sadly being hunted to extinction, there was a bounty put on them for some mm -hmm. stupid belief that they were killing livestock which they weren't really i mean they could but they weren't you know they weren't the culprits but anyways um so and people were pretty poor at this time so they were getting making a lot of money for every thylacine they killed well there was a woman and i can't remember her name but she was basically a conservationist who saw this happening and she apparently trapped several thylacines before they went extinct in tasmania uh, where they were abundant because the last Australian thylacine went extinct like 3,000 years ago, as far as we know. And mm -hmm. she took them to Australia, supposedly, and let them loose. Oh. And so that is why there is now a belief that if there's a thylacine population in Australia, 
it's because this woman that was trying to protect them took them out of Tasmania and released them. So I think that's a pretty uh -huh. cool theory if you think yeah, about I, it. Yeah, that's uh, the first I heard that story. Yeah, so um, hidden gem there. So um, yeah, they're Tasmania or Southern Australia. Um, I have had, it's not a secret, I've announced this before. Uh, COVID put a, a, a crimp in this plan, but I had been invited to join a thylacine expedition in Tasmania. And uh, it's, as far as I know, it's still kind of on the back burner because Australia has been pretty locked down, understandably, since this thing, pandemic started. But uh, if I could get over there, that would probably be my, my ultimate dream right now, Lon, is to do some thylacine cool. research. Find one of those things. I, I got another one here from Scarborough Sasquatch Station. Are gargles considered good or evil entities? Wow, that's our opinion. This is almost like a George Nury question because uh, <laughs> one time, here's a little behind the scenes. I know we're getting off track, but uh, on Coast to Coast, it's always an honor to go on that show. Um, they have you submit a list of questions that you'd like them to ask you if they, it'll help you sell your book or talk about things you're interested in. But George kind of goes off script sometimes and just kind of, yeah. you know, freelances. And uh, one time he asked me when I was doing a Mothman Flying Humanoids interview, he asked me, Ken, why are gargoyles so scary? <laughs> I was like, I had no answer. I was kind of like shocked because it's not a bad question, but it's just like, why are they scary? I don't know. They are. Um, okay. So I'm sorry. I digress. Let's get back to what we were talking <laughs> about. Gargoyles. Um, you know, gargoyles are viewed as, uh, and there, you find this dichotomy in different, in a lot of different legendary creatures is that they have this dichotomy. They have, they are a protector on one hand, but they can also be, you know, kind of a, a scary avenging bad thing, you know, that you don't want to encounter. And they have those dual personalities. And I think you have that probably in a lot of the, the gargoyles. I mean, the, the, uh, I can't pronounce the French word, but gargoyle comes from a French word meaning well, mm -hmm. um, or reservoir because these, and the whole legend has to do with these creatures that were protecting the water and the water sources and things. So um, that's why you see a lot of gargoyles that are fountains with like water shooting out of their mouths and stuff in Europe. Ooh. But, um, but yeah, um, you know, they are good uh, because they, they are at times can be protectives uh, and sentinels, but at other times maybe they, there can be bad ones and that are aggressive and scary and dangerous. So I don't know if that adequately answered the question, but. Well, uh, he has another question uh, about a werewolf or mm. you see a person. Have you ever seen a person who was suspected of being a werewolf or and what type of features distinguish it from a dog man? Ah, OK. Well, I don't uh, know anyone that's seen a traditional no, werewolf in that sense. Um, obviously, I've interviewed dog man witnesses, as you have. Um so this is interesting because a lot of the uh, the dogman researchers and investigators don't like the werewolf being brought into it. They say, no, that's something else. Because a werewolf, first of all, a werewolf is obviously a shapeshifter, right? Mm -hmm. The traditional European legends uh, from 15th and 16th century France and Germany, uh, you know, it was uh, a person who had basically entered into a pact with the devil and obtained this ability either by putting on a magical ointment, an incantation, an animal fur over the body, and they would literally transform into this. And, you know, ultimately there was a price to pay because they had, they had you know, made this deal with the devil. So it was going to be a bad, <laughs> bad trip 
south uh, when they were finished with all that. But um, <laughs> but a traditional European werewolf is a shapeshifter, but it's not bipedal. Uh, most virtually all werewolf legends talk about basically huge wolves on four legs, not two. But they do have some different characteristics. Um, they're often said to have human eyes. So their eyes are not canid or dog-like. They have human eyes and a wolf's body, and they frequently do not have a tail. They have the whole body of the wolf except for the tail. And they don't really go up on two legs. Um, and they are, they're essentially like giant killer wolves, but they have a level of intelligence and cunning of a human, you know, almost like a serial killer. So it's mm -hmm. not... It's not just like a wolf, which would be scary enough, but it's like this wolf that's kind of planning, you know, how to get you or, you know, how to <laughs> eradicate a family, a person at a time or what, you know, whatever the, the werewolf is going to do. Mm -hmm. um, so that doesn't really match any of the modern dogman accounts we get from North America. You know, I, I know from, you know, from speaking with Linda Godfrey and other researchers that dogman does go down on all fours occasionally. I mean, that was something I'd, Hadn't heard that as much, but apparently that has been reported. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, Dogman is more like a bipedal, anthropomorphic, half-human, half-dog, similar to the Mothman and the flying humanoids in that there seems to be kind of a weird metaphysical aspect, and they chase and terrify, and they're hyper-aggressive. Um, but the traditional European werewolf, you know, was always thought of as more of a kind of associated with witchcraft and the devil and... Uh, it's kind of like a curse type thing that, you know, um, I don't know if they're connected. I mean, yeah. to me, the names are similar enough. And that's what I always bring up. I mean, werewolf basically means dog man, but it's just half German. So <laughs> what do you, I don't, what do you think about that line? Well, I, you know, I think you they're know, different, you know, but the same. I mean, who knows? You know, the, the whole werewolf upright canine dog man lore really started to hit the United States and hit America when a lot of the the Pennsylvania Dutch or the Pennsylvania, I mean, the German farmers came mm -hmm. over here That's true. and started settling in Pennsylvania and Maryland. And uh, they were calling those things, uh, well, I mean, they had all kinds of names for them. But anyway, they, they, they were... Um, they were reporting these, these canids, cryptids, and... Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a that's I think that's where a lot of this started from. Now I'm not saying that th th these are all legends and that these are maybe thought forms or something. I don't know what they are, but uh, you know we do get a lot of reports, and here in Pennsylvania we get a lot of reports. We're working on some new reports right now up in Cambria County, Pennsylvania. Wow. Uh, so uh, yeah, yeah. Pennsylvania has definitely been a hot spot. I think yeah, uh, you know up there with. Ohio, Kentucky, and, you know, maybe Michigan, Wisconsin. I mean, it seems like those five states, you guys all have these, you know, high We've had some again. strange sightings, yeah. S and, similar again to the flying humanoids, right? You get these, absolutely. these pockets or whatever. I'm sorry. Yeah, we got them here. I mean, I had my encounter in 88, and we've also had these winged humanoid sightings in this area uh, several times. I mean, mm. myself and... Uh, uh, Timothy Renner, he's talked about it, and we've had, you know, this York and Adams County area has has been known for having a lot of weird things, but uh, yeah, we've had these winged humanoids as well as a few dogman upright canine sightings. So, mm -hmm. yeah, these are hot spots. There's no doubt about it. Uh, 
Nancy Malcolm asked, though, what is the difference between ETs and cryptids? Well, uh, you know, obviously extraterrestrial means, you know, not of the land, not of this land. You know, that's the Latin would be the Latin translation. And right. that, by that meaning our planet Earth. So an extraterrestrial would theoretically be a life form that is not evolved or developed on this planet. And uh, a cryptid, the traditional description of cryptid, and the one that I mostly adhere to is the one that, you know, it comes stems from cryptozoology, which is based on the concept of undiscovered animal species. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even if those animal species often display sort of fabulous characteristics and have legends behind them, things like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, mystery cats and things like that like uh like monsters but um you know i think obviously the the field has evolved not because of a conscious uh effort by the investigators that are true to that uh, you know orig original format of zo zoological mystery but mainly because you had other investigators like john keel and um you know at Ivan Sanderson, who was one of the mm -hmm. founders of cryptozoology, towards the end of his career, when he started the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained in New Jersey, and he was he got really into like UFOs and uh, other phenomenon, and so and and then you had a guy named Ted Holliday in the '60s who was a Loch Ness investigator who went from flesh and blood Nessie to paranormal, the dragon and the I can't remember the name of his book, uh, the Goblin Universe. So mm -hmm. there was kind of like an evolution with cryptozoology starting in the late 60s, early 70s, where some researchers began to look at this stuff more spiritually as opposed to just straight zoology. And then I think, I, I don't know if he's going to like me calling him out on this, but Lauren Coleman and Jerome Clark, when they wrote Creatures of the Outer Edge in the 70s, you know, they were writing about Bigfoot and lake monsters and Big Bird, but they were taking more of that kind of like 40 and look at it. Like, is there some, are these just animals or is it something more like beyond our realm of comprehension? So the field has just kind of evolved over the decades and particularly when social media got big in recent years and uh, the general public had more influence in terms of, you know, definitions of what a cryptid should be. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, so now of course, a lot of people think a cryptid also refers to the Slender Man or the Wendigo or, you know, some of these things that were not really considered cryptids back in the day. Um, but I don't know. I guess I guess if we we're going to uh, try to please as many people as we can along, we could say, OK, so a cryptid means like a creature of the Earth, even if it's a really far out creature. But we think it's been here on Earth for a long time. But an extraterrestrial is going to be something that we really feel okay, this is definitely not from our planet. So it came down in a craft, you know, it's collecting specimens. I mean, these, <laughs> this is all speculation. I was like, what would an extraterrestrial yeah. do on our planet? Uh, but then you have that blurry line of like interdimensional and portals, you know, maybe sure. it's not from space. It's an ultra terrestrial. It's from another reality or That's a term I use more and more now, ultra terrestrial, because it seems like there's more phenomena now that can fit in that category as opposed to just saying an extraterrestrial or cryptid or you know maybe you know maybe there is a, maybe there's a connection there yeah you know uh, who knows uh maybe the you know if john keel had it right then he thought that this phenomenon was all the same thing 
that these ultra-terrestrial beings were basically, he called it the global trickster, yep. that it changed, it was a shape-shifting phenomenon. So it mm -hmm. took different forms. It was a dog man, then it became a moth man or a Bigfoot. And, you know, we could only speculate why it was doing this. Uh, but, you know, so something from another dimension could pose as something that's coming from outer space as opposed to through a, a portal. Maybe I'm getting into some pretty wild speculation <laughs> now, but you know what I'm saying, Lon. I mean... It's not any different it's, it's, what I'm talking about here at the time. <laughs> it's all about our perception. How do we interpret Absolutely. it, you know? What is this phenomenon? Where is it coming from? Some people claim they've been abducted, abducted by aliens. Some people, they claim they've been abducted by Bigfoots, you know? Is it the same type of abduction? It's just the person who's being abducted is visualizing it or perceiving it in a different way. Absolutely. You know, there's something that came up here. Um, uh, a, a B put it up there about when you were in Alaska and you talked about the little people up there. And um, mm -hmm. I always thought that was fascinating. Tell us a bit about that again, will you? Yeah. So, um, you know, as you investigate Bigfoot, all over North America, particularly I've noticed if you're speaking to Native American people, you'll hear a lot of stories. I mean, they'll often, you know, acknowledge, yes, there is something like Bigfoot in our culture, a big, hairy, wild man or whatever. But they mm -hmm. always, you know, I've, I've encountered Native American people from Alaska to the Dakotas to Central America, different cultures that have all told me about little people legends. And not the traditional, you know, we're not talking about necessarily a straight traditional european fairy gnome you know type of leprechaun type of thing because they often uh describe these little people as being covered in hair and having almost more like a bigfoot type of quality even though they're very small and short powerfully built uh about three and a half feet tall usually reddish colored hair that's interesting um the long claws, long teeth, very aggressive uh, towards humans, very powerful and very greatly feared. So they almost sounds like a, a kind of a mini dwarf Sasquatch, almost similar to the so-called Orang Pendek or short man of Sumatra mm -hmm. or the Ibu Gogo uh, of Flores or some of these other, you know, sort of little hairy men stories from around the world. Um, now there is a slightly metaphysical or woo aspect to the little people legends because even though they're often described as hairy little savage like men they also have some magical abilities according to some, many natives they can alter time uh they can step they live in caves they abduct people but they can alter time or they can vanish um so they're they're actually very uh they're very frightening to people um the Native Americans seem to be more terrified of little people than, you know, hairy men, Sasquatch type things. Um, so, you know, I wrote a chapter in my Bigfoot book where I focused on the little, I call them Littlefoot. I don't think I invented that. Mm -hmm. I definitely came up with it before the movie, but I think there were other people that may have called it. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it looks like a Bigfoot, but it's little. It's a Littlefoot. Uh, some of those accounts may refer to juvenile Sasquatch, as we know Bigfoot is not born seven feet tall and 800 pounds. But still, uh, the, the beliefs, these native beliefs usually refer to, you know, uh, tribes or, you know, family units of these little people creatures. So some of the names in Alaska, they had many different names. They're called Anukins, Urchin Rock, Jinxiak, mm -hmm. 
Inchiak, um, in the Dakotas, they are the Narumbi, the Awakuli, the Hachesitehi, uh, in Minnesota, the Mamagweshi, uh, you got the Albert Witch, the Pukwudgies, Central America, they're the Duende, in Mexico, the Duende, so yeah, El Kakui. so they're just like little goblin type things. I don't know, you know, again, it's one of those things that kind of straddles that borderline between is there a zoological aspect to this? Because there were little hairy man-like creatures running all over Africa and Asia for millions of years. Uh, could they still be around? Or are these more in line with some of this other kind of far out, you know, what we were just talking about, something yeah. from another dimension or, or whatever. <clears throat> but, uh, they, you know, they certainly, the traditions go back a very long time in a lot of different American cultures. Well, do you know the Albatwitch is what we have here? Uh, and it's not, it's, it's in, uh, along the Susquehanna river over in Lancaster County around, uh, yep. uh yeah. And, uh, that's Columbia, Pennsylvania. And yeah, they yep. have, in fact, they have a festival there every year. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, that, that legend has been going on for a long time, but you know, some of the accounts, you know, I had a, um, I had an account come to me. Now this was further south into across the river into York County, in uh, in Red Line, but of a small uh, little Bigfoot that people this woman had seen running across the field and such. So people see them. I mean, yeah. there's no doubt about that. Yeah, I uh, I do have a footprint that I cast in Belize when I was doing a Duende investigation in 2004 2006. And uh, it was in a pretty remote area at a place called Pervasian Creek. Mm -hmm. We were searching in the Maya Mountains where a lot of these duendes were said to live. And um, I found one humanoid. Well, I found like two or three, but uh, they were they basically very human-like prints, but small. But you could see that it was not a shoe or a boot or a moccasin. It was someone walking around barefoot. Now, first of all, there are not – this is a very uh, unpopulated area. So there, there really aren't – there. Are, traditional Maya people from that region, but they don't live in these particular areas. And they certainly don't walk, walk around barefoot because you have mm -hmm. a lot of fertile ants, snakes and scorpions and tarantulas and things, spiky things on the ground, thorny things. Uh, but this one footprint in particular had a pointy heel. It was a human-like track. It was about six inches long with a pointy heel. And what was cool about that was that that was one of the stories that I'd heard about the Duende is that they have, you know, they're these little goblin-like creatures that live in the Maya Mountains, and they leave footprints with a pointy heel. Uh, now, similarly, it's also said that they their feet are on backwards, which is a recurring trope or theme that you find in different, the yet from the Yeti to, you know, the Duende to other mystery human-like creatures. In, in some legends, they're said to have their feet on backwards, which I don't know what exactly what that means, but it's just kind of one of those things that comes up. So... Uh, Oh, another interesting thing about the Duende is that uh, he only has four fingers. And so if you show him five fingers, it pisses him off. And then he'll, you know, <laughs> basically, that's like you don't want to do that to a Duende or any of these little people is show him how many fingers you have. Because they're very jealous about fingers, apparently. So. Interesting. Digits. Wow. They have digit envy. <laughs> I, I got an interesting question here from Anne Celine. Oh, uh, if someone wonderful. said you could choose one cryptid and I can take you to it, you can observe it and learn all there is to know about it. Which would you choose? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know that's, that's a real tough one. That's a good question. Well, hi lady. Anne. I, I appreciate the question. Uh, 
Um, she's a good friend of mine, by the way. Um, but that's a great question. Um, let's see. Uh, you know what? I People have often asked me, like, what's my favorite cryptid, which is always uh -huh. hard for me to answer because I love them all so much. But I'll say the a thunder, a traditional Native American Thunderbird. If oh. someone could take me to the top of a peak and, you know, in my mind, I've got the, kind of this Indiana Jones scenario where I've got this like, you know, Native American guy that knows, you know, he's a brave warrior that knows that where the nest is. And we climb up to the top of this peak and we look across and we see this magnificent bird with a, you know, 20 foot wingspan majestically guarding the nest and um, huge raptor like beak. That would be pretty cool. I would want to mm. observe one of those in the wild. And um I mean, really, any of them, but that's, uh, I guess I'll, I'll choose that one because I, 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 I've always been fascinated with the, the Thunderbird uh, accounts. I've interviewed so many eyewitnesses. I've never seen one, but so many people that I've talked to that have, that have sworn they've seen them. And it just, it just must be, you know, breathtaking, awe-inspiring to see one of these things. The winged beings are really fascinating. Yeah, I'm like you. I mean, the whole facets of it. Uh, pterodons. um mm -hmm. Thunderbirds, humanoids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so many different types. The the yeah. manta things that you've documented. And yeah. The, uh, I mean, I've had some really, I don't know. I had a, a lady about a year ago that claimed that she saw a winged black panther. So that was almost like a combination of two cryptids. You know, we know wow. the black panther cryptids are, are pretty. But she said, no, this was definitely a black panther, but it had wings too. So <laughs> you get those kind of like, you know, oddball kind of accounts that are that are pretty. pretty yeah, we get them once in a while. We do. Uh, yeah, Nancy Malcolm asked, "What is the newest and or oldest cryptid being reported now?" Oh, um, are we talking about oldest in terms of like the legend and the mythology? Yeah, I guess we could. Um, well, um, using and that goes back a long way. Using the broad term cryptid, we already talked about, you know, the, the ancient Assyrians and probably that the Apkalu, probably the ancient Sumerians and Apkalu. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like 3,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with Bigfoot, we often talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh, mm -hmm. which is a Babylonian story. So that would probably be a couple thousand years ago. So we do have kind of Bigfoot type creatures uh, if, if you want to include Endiku, which is the hairy man-like creature in the Epic of Gilgamesh, that would be a mm -hmm. two to 3,000 years ago. Oh, no, I got one. Uh, you know, what about the, the archetype of the giant water serpent? I mean, you can go back. Absolutely. It's in the Bible with Leviathan. It's in uh, Scandinavian Viking mythology. Uh, the Yor... Oh, it's going to bug me. I'll have to think about this. But, uh, yeah, um they're like dragons, you know, they're water dragons, but they're always like serpentine and just massive. And you find those traditions, those legends that go back hundreds and thousands of years and, and several cultures of two. So we have different, you know, interesting. We have like the three major archetypes are the wing, you know, creatures from the air, the aquatic creatures from the water. And then the terrestrial creatures are often like uh, a, bestial version of us you know like a, a, mm -hmm. a primitive hair covered giant man as opposed to so those, those seem to be all seem to be pretty prevalent archetypes around the world that go back a long ways in, in legends and mythology so how about the newest 
the newest, the newest cryptid. Uh, I oh, <laughs> he showed me a picture of like a weird. I guess that was it. Uh, was that Indiku? Okay, I think that was Indiku. Okay, so I was like, what is this like bearded guy with a donkey? <laughs> yeah, that's ear? I think that's who that is. And he, he put it up right as you said, what is the newest? And I thought, oh, is that like a you know, the newest uh, is like a the name of the weird cryptid or something? Okay, um, sorry, it's been a long day. Oh, I get it. Uh, the newest cryptid is obviously Dogman because, uh, I think as you said earlier, I mean, we didn't really. Until like the 80s and 90s when Linda Godfrey started documenting the Beast of Bay yeah. Road. And then it was even after that we started hearing about, oh, no, the Michigan Dogman's been around forever. Well, you know, no one had ever really heard of the Michigan Dogman until right. Beast of Bray Road. And um, so I think that's a pretty new cryptid on the scene. And, you know, if you – I don't know. I don't really put a lot of stock in these cryptid uh, creepy pasta things like Slender Man and well, I just wrote know, a book about that, so I don't Black know. Black Eyed Kids is that a yeah, cryptid? I mean, they're new. Yeah. It, it's hard to to describe them as cryptids. I mean, you know, I, I look at this. I call them the meme humanoids, or you know, the the pale crawlers, or whatever you want to call them. Oh, yeah. I don't really look at them as cryptids, though. Yeah. We we know no really don't know what they are, but you know, we don't even know if they're just somebody's imagination or something that's being thought formed or a tulpa or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. Yeah. And, you know, you can't have any, I mean, you know, I, I often express that I am that traditional old school oh, Bernard, Bernard Hubelman's, you know, Roy Mackle cryptozoologist, but I can't control and no one can control you know, what culture, what cultures want to, and society wants to view as a cryptid or what different right. people want to, there's no hard, fast rules. It's not like traditional science where, you know, you have to, so people can call whatever they want a cryptid. I'm not going <laughs> to stop them from doing that. You know, I just always want to yeah. point out that there's two ways to look at any mysterious creature. One is that, is there any way that it could have conceivably evolved on our planet does it fit into the scheme into the paradigm of the fossil record and all the species that we've known about you know it, does it make biological and zoological sense bigfoot does thunderbirds do mystery cats do loch ness monster does so there's a lot of cryptids that do that you could say this could be a prehistoric survival or something that we just overlooked right but other cryptids like mothman dogman goatman mermaids uh, black eyed kids, they just, they don't fit into the scheme of zoology. So yes, they're fascinating. I love talking about them. They're mysterious. They're scary. They're weird. There's legends that back them up and eyewitnesses that have seen them. Um, so people can call those cryptids. I, you know, I don't necessarily always do that. Sometimes on a show like this, I'll be a little bit more open to my interpretation because this yeah. is, this is fun. And we're having like good good conversation here about what people think. So, here's an interesting question, but from Summer Nights, uh, Dogman eats roadkill. So, does that make it a normal animal? It's mm. a good question. That's, I like yeah, the I, I like the, the critical thinking. There is is good. Um, okay, so yeah, so it has a biological need to consume energy, which all mm -hmm. animals do. All animals on the planet whether you're talking about a coral or a bat or a whale or whatever, there's two things that cause an organism to be classified as an animal. Mm -hmm. One is that it's modal, which means that it can be spontaneously move around, even if it's not a lot of movement, but at some point it's 
it's going to move freely to wherever it wants to be. And two, that it's heterotrophic, meaning that it consumes other animals or their waste products or plants or for energy. So yes, so Dogman has been seen eating roadkill. Uh, probably the most famous, one of the most famous Beast of Bay Road sightings by a, a woman named Laura Andreezy uh that saw this thing feasting on roadkill so that certainly is intriguing and i guess you could score one that one in the box of people that want to say okay no dogman is a flesh and blood animal it's something unknown you could check that box um well i will say I this but those uh, accounts aren't real common i'll just add that go ahead most of the sightings of bigfoot that we have here now i'm talking about in this area mm -hmm. are seen on the road collecting roadkill up around uh Misho State Forest in okay, Pennsylvania yeah. just west of Gettysburg gotcha I get a lot of reports of people who have seen Bigfoot collecting dead deer and stuff on that have been hit mm -hmm. uh and we've also had uh Canaan cryptic Canaan seen feasting on roadkill along the side of the road during the day as well so uh yeah i mean all right well that, that's a great yeah that's fascinating i, I yeah. appreciate i always like to hear about those kind of different regional patterns and things because that's yeah. real important as an investigator but this this is a kind of a cool segue along to say well you know there are the people that talk about could some of the dogman sightings actually be misrepresentations of bigfoots or sasquatches that sure. are seen you know and what are the variables here okay People, the main one is that people, when they see them, they get they freak out and their emotion goes to a hundred because you're not expecting to see something that shouldn't exist or that right. doesn't exist, and it just literally throws you into a state of. So it's really going to affect how you remember and respond and perceive. Usually, these sightings are at night, and they're often very quick. You know, someone's in a car and it's just like a few seconds or a brief glance. So. So, so yeah, so if Bigfoots and Sasquatches eat a lot of roadkill and we only have like a handful of dogman accounts of them eating roadkill, then we could, you know, speculate that maybe those dogman accounts are just, you know, people may, oh no, it had a dog like head. Well, maybe, you know, the lighting or shadows or, you know, it's just the way they interpreted it. It was, it was dog like, but it was, you know, hairy and man like too, right. which kind of fits in the. Bigfoot Sasquatch. Category. Well, that's something that we have looked into here as best as possible. Is you know, we talk to witnesses. Are they confusing them with a Bigfoot? You know, it could happen. We don't know. I mean, know. I'm, not, I'm not completely trying to completely debunk the. No, the I understand. What you're but 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 some of them could be Bigfoots, and yeah. uh, people just you know, especially if they're not really. It's just you know, we're all different, right, Lon? Everyone has yeah. different biases and influences, and some people. We'll look at it's like when they do those ink blot tests at this, you know, psychologists. Some <laughs> people see this, yeah. a balloon and some people see an elephant and some yeah. people see a you know, whatever. So everybody has a different perspective yeah. on anything. I you know, I have if I haven't learned one thing, that's one thing I have learned all these years. Everybody looks at something differently. Any you know, absolutely. And I love that because it, to me, that makes life much more interesting. I'm glad <laughs> yes, that we don't all agree on everything. All right. Uh, Scarborough Sasquatch Station asked, uh, Duendes, are they always seen with those large hats? No. Yeah. Um, not always, but that yeah. is a, a common trope. The Duende who it we were is. talking about a moment ago is that they have these big sombreros. 
Sometimes they carry little machetes. Sometimes he's got a long beard. Uh, the, the, the technical full name is Tata Duendi, which means grandfather, little grandfather, or maybe another word on me, but they, you know, they look like little bearded men, you know, and there's probably just like you were talking about earlier about how the werewolf, a lot of the werewolf legends migrated over to your region from, you know, the Dutch settlers and other mm -hmm. European settlers. Well, Belize has a mixture of the ancient old Maya culture, but there was also a lot of European influence that came over from both England and Spain. So some of those fairy European fairy gnome legends may have migrated over. And of course, Duende is also in Spain. If you go to, to Spain, you'll hear about Duendes and in the mm -hmm. Philippines, which is a, you know, on the other side of the world, but there's a span strong Spanish cultural influence in the Philippines because yes, of the, is. so you, the colonization there. So you hear about Duendes uh, in the Philippines as well. But no, they don't always wear the hats, but that has been, been reported. Interesting. Uh, James West asked, and he's asked me this, and I haven't really have given him a great answer. Have you ever heard of, of ways to keep dog man away from your property? Huh. Well, let me think about this for a minute because I've spoken to, well, you know, I don't know. First of all, how do we test that? You know, how do we test this? Um, you know, if it's an experiment, how do we know it's keeping them away from your property? You right. Know? Um, I don't hear about a lot of cases of like habituation, like with Bigfoot, where people claim that dogmans are coming onto their property all the time. I did investigate a case, um, in Vider, Texas years ago, where there was a, a young couple that claimed that there was a dogman type creature. They called it a werewolf, but this was back in the seventies, basically, uh, was coming on their property, uh, banging on ripping the screens on the windows, banging on the walls, and it killed a bunch of their dogs. And how they dealt with it ultimately was they went outside with a shotgun and shot it with a shotgun. And, uh, but you know, they did move out of there pretty quickly from what I remember after that. But um, that would be one way. That's how I would deal with it. I've got a 12 gauge sitting over here against the wall. And uh, uh, that's how I, I guess that sounds <laughs> maybe i sound a little psychotic saying that but i am texan so i say yeah if there's a dog man comes on my property i'm going to get the 12 gauge out and <laughs> I, I think that'll deter it from ever coming back or maybe not but you could also have a can of bear spray if you didn't want to be lethal with it that would probably be the best bet out of all of bear spray and it, you know if it'll stop a a thousand pound grizzly it would probably stop a, an 800 pound dog man i would guess I you know. would hope yeah uh also scarborough asked uh ken have you been or experienced any infrasound and was it low level or high level uh, now i know you've been around a lot of zoo animals uh a lot of big cats have you ever experienced any of that i don't think i've ever encountered any uh you know infrasound from any animals i can think of um i you know i work at the san antonio zoo as a volunteer educator and i spend a lot of time at the elephant exhibit we've got two awesome asian elephants there and sometimes i can I can almost sense like they're making these low rumbly sounds, you know, that mm. they're kind of like under their breath, but it's kind of hard to tell, but it's never really affected me. Like I never felt like, Oh, right. you know? it's just like, wow, that is a really low frequency. It's almost like I'm feeling it more than I'm hearing it. And I think I've also gotten that from the draft at the zoo on occasion, but nothing that's ever really affected me in that way. Um, uh, now I will say that, uh, you know, I, we did an episode of missing in Alaska, uh, on the uh, harp facility up in Alaska, which is like this 
I don't want to get into the whole explanation, but it was like a thing that they were using really ultrasound, not infrasound, which is low mm -hmm. frequencies. Ultrasound are frequencies above our range of hearing. Oh, sorry, I kind of knocked my light there. I got too excited. Um, and, you know, they, I have to be honest here. The producers were kind of messing with my head a lot on that episode. So, like, the first thing that happened was there was got this guy named Dr. Nick Begich who has been investigating and writing about heart for years. And he did this experiment where he put electricity and sound waves through my body, like by touching my hand. And then I could hear it in my head, even though it wasn't coming through my ears. That really just like, just experiencing that, like just threw me completely in this weird state of mind. Cause it was like so different from anything I'd ever experienced before. And he was kind of using that to kind of demonstrate or illustrate how something like heart could work, which is the concept is that sound waves can alter your brain waves. So if it's a concentrated energy, whether it's low frequency or high frequency, your brain has like this, just like your heart, it's got this rhythm and this cadence in a particular frequency. And theoretically, you could disrupt that with sound waves. So um, not the infrasound thing, but we did that. They did that. And then when we went, we ended up going to the heart facility and obviously it was supposed to be shut down. We couldn't get in, but we were flying a drone over a, a navy you know which was really stupid you know so we we're doing a lot of like, things that were already like and there were all these security you know and stories and so i don't know i kind of i kind of got psyched out and i felt like it's kind of sick and like just i had to get out of there and a little panicky and so that was actually demonstrated in the show so a little bit of that i i amped it up but i really didn't feel that way i, I felt like really mm. nauseous i'm just like just so but i don't know if it was something about being at the heart facility if that was still because supposedly it was shut down and they weren't doing any of these experiments anymore that even though the the ray of, of uh, transmitters and stuff is still there so not infrasound exactly uh i may have encountered some ultrasound type thing but it was probably more likely just like a psychological thing where i psyched myself out and thought just being at this place was making me feel weird mm. hopefully that's at least it, that gives you something even if it's not <laughs> you know. Well, let me ask you this. What are your thoughts on cryptids, Bigfoot, upright canines, actually emitting these type of frequencies? Well, um, you know, I write about it in my book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, that, you know, the, the allegations of infrasound with Bigfoot have been around for a while now. Um, I don't know if I've heard of any real solid, I mean, I don't know any Bigfoot investigators that have put forward a really solid argument that that's what happened to them if they experienced something like that. Right. I mean, I heard a story like this is a perfect example. I heard a story when I was up at an Oklahoma Bigfoot event a few weeks ago. There were three investigators walking in a line through the woods, turn up in this where there was all this Bigfoot activity, and the guy in the middle claimed that he had been zapped with infrasound and started like freaking out and i feel horrible and i got to get out of here well how did this thing was able to laser beam focus infrasound at one guy but not the other two guys that doesn't right. make sense because it's like if you know anything about sound it's not like a especially like sound waves sine waves of like low frequencies are not like super high concentrated they're just like they would be theoretically be these booming so I don't know. So, I mean, you hear stories like that where people claim they've been quote unquote zapped, but it's all, it's all just so highly speculative about whether Bigfoot could really even has this ability just because it's big and how it would use it. And uh, now the, the best story I've heard actually relates to the stench over this, uh, 
the sound. There was a guy at a, a research location in Louisiana years ago that claimed that he's, you know, the Sasquatch basically was near him and put off this horrible smell, which we've heard about from time to time. And it made him feel so bad and so sick that they had to take him the rest. The other Bigfoot researchers had to rush him to the hospital, to the emergency room because he was mm. that is that. So that's interesting, right? That you don't mm-hmm. hear a lot of smell attacks as opposed to sound attacks. Like but a chemical, that is, a chemical weapon. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> exactly. Very well put. It's a chemical yeah. weapon of some kind. So I don't know. This is all fun to talk about, but we just don't. We just don't know. Well, I mean, you know, I, I when when I and as more so with upright canines, with people encounter these things that you know people here in Pennsylvania, uh, especially people who are armed. I have had hunters walk up on these things. And, you know, they tell us that they get this feeling that they've got to back away. I know they're scared anyway, sure. but they, you know, just drop your weapon or lower it and back away very slowly. It's almost like it's something telling them to do that as opposed to just being scared. Yeah. You know, people, people have reported that and people have yeah. reported the mind speak. You know, I'm not, again, I'm not an advocate of that, but I just... Yeah. You know, after that, that same Oklahoma lecture I just mentioned, I did a very, my very traditional, you know, Aper style Bigfoot presentation that Grover Prance or John Bindernagel would be proud of. And afterwards, this hunter came up to me full, full on camo. You know, you can tell he's an outdoorsman, has the right gear, red oak or whatever, and uh, says, you're wrong. They do mind speak. I encountered a family of Sasquatches in the woods and... They be, I began to hear their voices in my head. And he even had like a word that was like garaka or something, you know, and I, I didn't want to be like disrespectful. I said, sir, yeah. you know, um, I'm not going to question your integrity or what you're telling me. You seem very sincere. I can just say that I've not seen enough evidence that this so-called mind speak between Sasquatches and human actually happens. And I've investigated so many cases over the years. It's so yeah. rare. And it's kind of the same with the infrasound thing. It's kind of like, does it really happen? Or is it just something that's kind of, you know, adds that kind of extra quality to the mystery that people... I, I just look at it as another example of perception. I mean, you know, they're perceiving maybe someone... They're scared. Perce- yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, fear kinda, can do a lot of things to you. Your story kind of nailed it. These guys, people, they counter them and they're, you know, it's... Think about this. It's like... You know, you've been wired, your brain's been wired, you know, your reality has been set your whole life. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly something that is not supposed to exist, that is a myth, steps right into your reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's got to just shake the core and the foundation of everything. I mean, Lon, you, we both heard these stories. I know hunters that have encountered these things that basically never went out in the woods again. They sold their guns. I'm done. I'm out. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's I hear pretty, it all the time. Pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. Um, Android Purity asks, uh, do you believe that ancient European reports of werewolves and dogmen, and, I mean, are they the same as an American, the American phenomena, the American reports? Uh, are they the same thing? It sounds like a question we covered about 30 minutes ago. So yeah, maybe, it's similar maybe, to that. Okay, I will, we'll, you know, we'll encapsulate it. Um, I don't know. Um, the, the traditional European werewolves, as we discussed, are shapeshifters. They don't walk on their hind legs. They're always on four legs. They don't have necessarily very human-like qualities. The man part is not very strong. 
except for their human like eyes and their cunning human like mind and abilities mm -hmm. uh they don't seem to match with uh the dog man that said it seems to be too much of a coincidence that you have at least some similarities in terms of you know that combination or that synthesis of a human and a canid or a dog now i always like to talk about psychology and cultural anthropological things which are probably not going to be very interesting to everyone listening but <laughs> you know dogs why why do people love dog man so much well in my opinion it's because humans love dogs so much mm -hmm. i mean all of i'm a cat lover personally but i love all animals i don't judge but i know how much people that are dog lovers love dogs i mm -hmm. mean they're man's best friend for a reason we've been cohabitating for at least 15 to thirty thousand years so i think one of the reasons that dog man is uh, such a popular cryptid is that it's a dog man you know <laughs> i know that sounds stupid because it's so simple yeah but you know i think that's i think there's something to that that people really are fascinated with the dog man and werewolves because we already love and are connected to our dogs and this is like a another you know it's a strange creature but it's got those familiar it's familiar to us i guess that's mm -hmm. what i'm trying to say but yeah, um, absolutely uh oh here's a great one vincent wants to know have you ever experienced any paranormal activity of any kind yourself uh yes i have uh the one incident i can definitively say was um years ago i was speaking at a paranormal conference in a place called jefferson texas which is the most haunted city in texas it's also where they have the bigfoot conference in october by the way and uh very it's a bigfoot capital texas but also there's a lot of haunted bed and breakfasts very old railroad kind of town and i was invited to a ghost investigation i like to tag along and to see what people are doing it's not my necessarily my expertise or anything but um so there were some people in the front of the house some ghost investigators using one of these obulus things which is a ghost box you know where they're doing Mm -hmm. AM radio transmission and hearing words and trying to communicate with the spirits. I was in the hallway and this was actually called the McKay house, which unfortunately tragically burned down a few years ago. But, um, there was, uh, this big, heavy kitchen door in the middle of the house, real old house and this big, heavy door. And I'm talking to this other paranormal investigator and suddenly the door just slammed shut. It was wide open and it just goes, bam. And we both just looked at it and we're like, did that just happen? Because, you know, there's, it's not like there's a breeze. People aren't moving in and out of the house. Everything's quiet and still except for this. And we went over there and of course we tried to debunk it. You know, is the door loose? Is there a breeze? Where's the air vent? You know, and I don't know. So we saw this door slam and really couldn't find any good reason why this door would have just suddenly slammed like that. Well, this is, so that was, I don't know. I can't say definitively that's hundred percent paranormal, but you know, there was no physical reason for this door to slam and it was in a very yeah. haunted bed and breakfast where ghost experience. So I don't know, that was kind of cool. Uh, another time I was investigating a thing called the uh, South Pittsburgh hospital in Tennessee, which is like this old abandoned hospital that they do these ghost investigations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was with a, an investigator that was doing like these, he was broadcasting, he brought a sound system and he was broadcasting hospital sounds, like trying to bring the hospital back to life with like different EKG machines and people coughing. It was pretty cool. And we had one of these ghost box things doing and we did hear, you know, and it was all kind of subjective, but we thought we heard, 
you know, some responses to our, some of the questions and things that were pretty, pretty mm -hmm. coincidental. And in that same hospital, I felt one night walking down because we were camping there. I was walking down one of the dark hallways by myself and I, you know, I'm not scared. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have my, my paranormal friends out there. I was like, you know, like, oh, I was like, well, do the ghosts kill people? Do they have guns and knives? Like, well, no. So why are you going to be afraid? But, you know, they scare you. But anyways, so I was walking down this dark hallway and I suddenly felt this like surge of energy in my body. Like it kind of felt like electricity. I was like, like tingle, like I was, you know, touching a low voltage and I don't know, again, I don't know if that was 100% paranormal, but I've heard people talk about that, like feeling this like energy in a haunted, really highly haunted place. So I don't know. That's Those are the things that I can think of. They're not super dramatic. I didn't see any apparitions or nothing scratched me or a book flying at my head, but a door slamming, a weird electrical sensation, and kind of some weird ghost box voices that almost you know, like made sense, like, oh, wow, you know, we asked it this and it did say that. So I don't know. There's a lot of subjectivity and I find it fascinating. I, I, I think uh, paranormal investigation, you know, like I said, it's not my thing, but the people that do it, I think it's a really interesting, uh, you know, mystery to pursue, obviously. So uh, I had another question from Dauzi nine millimeter. That's an interesting name. Uh, mm -hmm. Neither flesh and blood or paranormal explanation seems to satisfy all aspects of witness testimony mm. could there be a technological aspect involved that we that we don't fully understand well, that's a great question and actually um i put a post up uh on social media a few days ago because i you know i i know so many paranormal researchers and i've kind of put the question out there like well what you know in your opinion what paranormal causes could make people think that they're having experiences like seeing cryptids and creatures mm -hmm. like that. And it's, there were some great answers, but uh, some of them are more technical than I would probably be able to express. But the most recurring theme was the fact that uh, EMF or electromagnetic energies, which we know, uh, you know, can be generated by, uh, you know, well, we know they can be, you know, generated by like uh, wiring and things like that in old mm -hmm. buildings because they get picked up, but also, like in the earth, you have, you know, electromagnetic energy in the, in the, within the geologic structure of the earth and different types of deposits and things. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that energy is intense enough. And that's what we debated. Like, is that intense enough to affect someone in a way that they would suddenly have an experience because whatever reason it's stimulating the mind or the energy fields or whatever it is. Um, and we also have some electromagnetic energy running through our bodies, a very minute amount so that was kind mm -hmm. of the thing so maybe that answers the question that maybe some type of energy like electromagnetic energy you know as far as like how it does it i mean you know th these are like concepts long to me that are like so far beyond our current ability to understand how our world and universe works around us yeah We're still try always learning trying to figure out why um but you know that was kind of an interesting theory is that that human brain perception is somehow altered or we become more receptive like big transmitters basically or conduits where we can either experience things that we can't normally experience that are happening around us or we're opening doorways to other fields and levels of energy and reality i don't know it's all pretty cosmic stuff but um 
I, I think there's something to that, though. You know, I get people ask me a lot because, you know, I'm near Gettysburg and I've, I've had encounters there and they, you know, they ask about it. And I say, well, the geological uh, aspects of this this area and other areas are, are high concentrations of quartz, granite. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. maybe they do uh, are conducive to electrical fields or magnetic fields that cause some type of distortion that allow you to sense these things or see these things more so than you would at other places. Uh, I don't know. That may very well be that. You know, I don't know. You know, but people ask it all the time. Yeah, that's a great one. And um, I've got a, a, another turn I want to take on this question, which might mm-hmm. actually, you know, some people might might not like it but it's just something i i think it's worth considering so there have been recent studies that have found that humans are born and can generate with our minds trace elements of something called dmt mm-hmm. which is the most powerful hallucinogen on the planet mm-hmm. and um you know there are theories that maybe it's in our locked into our genetic code because our ancient ancestors would eat mushrooms and other psychedelic drugs as they were doing these spiritual ceremonies or religious, you know, awakenings or, you know, whatever, vigils. Um, Is it possible that we are able to, basically our minds are able to generate hallucinations that are so vivid that we are completely incapable of distinguishing between reality and this hallucination? Because one of the interesting common tropes or themes with these supposedly with DMT hallucinations is that people claim that they have either spiritual or mythological experiences where they're seeing or experiencing things that are perceived to be mythological in nature, such mm-hmm. as a winged humanoid from 3000 years ago. <laughs> you know, so, so I don't know. I know this is going to piss people. I'm, I'm not hallucinating. Well, I mean, we have to accept, let's be critical thinkers here. Mm-hmm. We have to accept the fact that it is at least possible that humans can have hallucinations And it's not something we have a choice about. It's not like, okay, I'm not going to have a hallucination today. It's just something that happens to our minds to where we are 100% convinced that we just saw this creature that's mythological and we saw it. There's no, it was there. And our brain just can't tell the difference. I don't know. It's kind of a, I know it seems like a bummer because the world seems more interesting if they're coming from other dimensions and stuff, but what if they're mind monsters? I mean, it's not that different from what you were talking about earlier with the thought projections. Yeah, it's I mean, way of, exactly. Of explaining it, you know. You know that that's the whole thing about all of this that we do. You got to keep an open mind. Uh, the conundrum part of all of this is always there. You know, you know the whole whole thing's an enigma. And you, you know, we try to figure it out. So we're going to come up with all kinds of explanations yeah. and theories. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to not know stuff. That's kind of my attitude. <laughs> I love not. Yeah. I love living in a world where there's things we don't know what's going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. I know a lot of people that make some people uncomfortable. You know, we know it all, darn it. But no, we. I don't think we do. There's a no, lot. No, we of, don't. But it's no, let's let's continue to do these shows and have these discussions because it's fun to come up with theories and speculate and share different ideas about it. So. Well, I got one last question for you. And from Marla, she asked, do you believe in a Bigfoot UFO connection? I have not personally seen enough evidence to, to really, you know, to consider right. that to be relevant. And in fact, I, this is interesting. I, I read a survey in a book recently 
And this is a book from the early 80s that I was just kind of revisiting. So out of 1,000, a sample base of 1,000 Bigfoot reports, there were only 30 that had these kind of UFO connection allegations. This is mm -hmm. just out of a random sample size from that time period, the early 80s. And, the, you know, before the 70s. So in a sense, in essence, 3%. So 3% of your standard Bigfoot sighting has any type of UFO reference, link, accusation, which is, you know, if you're going to look at this stuff scientifically, that's a pretty low percentage. Mm -hmm. That's not something you would emphasize if you're testing a, a theory or trying to do an experiment. You're not going to say, well, let's focus on this UFO angle because three out of every hundred people say that it's happening, you know, so it's like, you know, 97% are saying it walked across the road and it went in the woods or it was hiding behind that tree. And then it went up that hill. And, you know, those yeah. are all perfectly natural. It's an animal, not an extraterrestrial, ultra terrestrial. So I don't, I don't think that, but okay. you know, I, I, you know, guys like, you, you know, Stan Gordon, I mean, he's been, researching since the early 70s he has the best evidence that there could be a connection he's done well, you know he makes a strong think, argument when i think of it i think of that case with stan i think of the prescott case up yeah. near erie yeah and i also was involved in a habituation up in northern uh nova scotia okay where the, the individual saw one of these Sasquatch actually coming out of a craft. Now, ah, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm just saying that, that that's what he told me. You know, and yeah, I, 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 but I, you know, they they do exist. I mean, we're yeah. not denying that those accounts do exist. All I'm yeah. saying is that they make up a microcosm. Of I, yeah, I have not heard any evidence. Of them. Yeah, so, that's all I've ever heard. So I agree with you. Yeah, there there are not many accounts of it, but uh, you know, when they do pop up, they are interesting. They're fun to talk about, but I don't I don't think there's a connection there. But I'm okay. open minded. You know, yeah, I, like yeah, you I agree with you. you keep saying that, but it's true. I, <laughs> if someone shows me definitive proof that they do come out of UFOs, I will readily accept that and say, <laughs> okay, I was wrong. They, that's where they're coming from. Well, okay, Ken, uh, what's, what's going on with Ken? What's coming up with you in the near future? Oh gosh. I have uh, 15 public appearances coming up this year Holy around moly. the country. COVID's over. If I have time to, yeah, I don't know if they're coming back. I'll be speaking at the Mothman Festival in September up in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Uh -huh. I'll be at the Texas Bigfoot Conference and Minnesota Bigfoot Conference in October. I'm speaking at the first ever Alabama Bigfoot Conference in June. Uh, two times in Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains. Uh, gosh, what else? I'm speaking at the Haunted America Conference in Alton, Illinois at the end of June. Uh -huh. Um there's a new conference in uh, Missouri. Sorry, I just booked this one. But yeah, so I'm going to be traveling around a lot in Michigan, uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, Alabama. So I'll be, you know, around mostly the eastern U.S. But if anyone wants to come out, I'll be doing lectures, presentations. I always have autographed copies of my books, DVDs. I always love talking to people, meeting people, and hearing about their opinions and experiences. And so, uh, and I've also been working on some television shows. I'm, I currently can be seen on the History Channel series, The Proof is Out There, mm -hmm. which airs on Friday nights after Ancient Aliens. Uh, we're coming up on a, we just got picked up for a season three. So I'm just one of many commentators, but uh, there's a lot of good uh, people that contribute to that show. And also I've got some upcoming appearances on uh, Unexplained with William Shatner as well. Good. 
Well, maybe you and I will physically hook up sometime. I uh, I missed you once before, and uh, but uh, it, one day it'll happen. Definitely, brother. I, I wish there were more events. You know, I have a lot of uh, f- fans and followers uh, up in the Northeast, and they're always saying, "When are you going to come up here to the Northeast, the Atlantic Coast?" Or I was like, "Man, I I would come if there was an event." But it just seems like everyone's booking them in Ohio, Michigan, and Tennessee, I mean, Kentucky, yeah. there's certain state, Pennsylvania, to some extent gets all the, the events and they just, you know, we need some more in Maryland, Virginia, you know, New England, Absolutely. New York. I mean, whatever, Connecticut, I'd, I'd love to go. So, well, you know, I appreciate you coming on and doing this. Uh, it was great to talk to you again. And I'm quite sure our listeners are very appreciative of you taking the time. So uh, until next time, you take care, have a great weekend, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Lon. Uh, Thanks again for having me on. Uh, Thanks for Vince for running the show and great questions, everyone. I saw some great comments and questions, so I really appreciate everyone that kind of got involved in the discussion tonight. Let's do it again. All right. Take Mm. care. Bye. Now, if uh, you have an unexplained encounter or sighting, feel free to contact me directly at lonstrickler.phantomsandmonsters.com or or through the Phantoms and Monsters blog site. Also, if you would like to, uh, like your encounter or sighting read on the show, please forward to my email. Uh, This is something that uh, uh, Vince and I are working on, and we will start presenting these shows live in in short time. So, uh, you know, we'll give you plenty of notice of when this is going to happen. So I want to again thank Ken Gerhardt for coming on this evening and answering these questions. It was great. I really enjoyed this. And, and thanks to each and all of you for watching and chatting. If you uh, made a super chat donation, it's it's truly appreciated. Your support is what makes all this possible. And please click the subscribe button and also become a member of the Fams of Monsters Radio. Uh, my new book, Mean Humanoids, Modern Myths Are Real Monsters, is now available on Amazon. So uh, next week, we will be continuing our roundtable series with an alien encounters discussion. The guest list is still in the works, but I promise you that uh, you won't be disappointed. So be sure to tune in for that. So until next week, stay healthy and have a safe, enjoyable weekend. Good night.